right, good morning, church. If you guys want to come on in and take your seat, it's good to, we'll go ahead and get started today. It's good to see you guys. I was kind of predicting, yeah, about, uh, you know, an hour after, hour late this morning, 30 minutes typically late to church. Most of the people from first service be showing up right about now, and so that uh, that's kind of worked out pretty well, but um, it's good to see you guys. As Jeff talked about, I just want to keep, we're going to keep pushing the go and be on the, on the 29th and get signed up early. This is our opportunity to get outside of the walls of this church, to be the church out in our community where we are all the time. Uh, we need you to sign up early. Uh, they, I'll tell you, some of these projects are already filling up. So please, you can sign up right out there at the, little, at the welcome table. You can do it online as well. But again, this is a reaffirmation that we are not just the church when we gather together on Sunday mornings inside these walls. We are always the church 24-7, uh, the gathering of people uh, that, that exists for his praise. And so um, I hope you guys are a part of that. It's going to be a good Sunday morning. And I uh, can't wait to see what's, what's going to take place then. So um, this morning, we're going to keep going in this series. We started a few weeks back on Colossians. Uh, and then we've been essentially calling it Jesus First because uh, that's the, Paul's essential, his, his argument all throughout uh, this letter. Not only is he first, but he should be first in our lives. And so we've been praying that he would ascend on the throne of our lives, that he would be preeminent in everything, as he talks about in chapter 1. Uh, this morning, we're going to keep going on... Uh, on uh, kind of part two of what I started last week. And so we're going to revisit this section in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, he's talking about what it looks like to have a better, more God-glorifying family life, better, more God-glorifying work life in this section. And so this is going to be kind of section two of this. So I'm going to invite you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word. Uh, you heard it last week, but... Um, we're going to go a little different direction with the same passage this week. So he begins in verse 17, and he says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't embitter your children, or they'll become discouraged. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters and everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism with him. Masters, provide your bond servants with what is right and what is fair, because you know that you also have a master who is in heaven. Father, would you come and would you have your way in us this day? Lord, we gladly surrender to your truth. Um, we come under the authority of your word. And Father, I pray that you would give us all a spirit of humility to receive everything that you'd have for us today. And Father, I want to specifically pray for um, family life and really work life. And God, I pray that those two arenas that we are in typically all the time throughout the week. Father, I pray that those would be beautiful things that are pleasing and glorifying to you. And so we need you to do that in us. We need you to teach us your way. And not only that, but would you produce your way in us. And so, God, we give you our time. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' mighty and holy name. Amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. 
Um, like I said, we're going to be picking up where we started last week. Last week we talked all about gratitude because that's one of the directions that Paul is going in here. He's saying that one of the keys and one of the foundational pieces of having a better, more God-glorifying marriage, family life, work life is that you are a grateful person. That's what he says. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So real quick, I just want to see a uh, show of hands. How many of you guys engaged in the gratitude challenge last week? Right, you, you took it, you're a part of it. We got a few hands out there. Uh, I love it, we're not people that accept challenges a whole lot. But um, anyway, that's kind of what we were up to last week. We took seven consecutive days to really focus on gratitude a whole lot, to say at least five minutes of every day, I'm just going to sit there and I'm going to dwell on the things that I'm grateful for. I'm going to give God thanks for these things. I'm going to recognize that he has gifted me beyond all measure with all things in my family life, my, my personal life, my work life, all these things. And I'm going to take at least five minutes a day to give him praise and to give him thanks for these different things. And so we talked about last week that it's not only the right thing to do, but it's actually a good thing to, for, for us to do. He's wired us in such a way that gratitude has a way of coming in and making these relationships, making these environments uh, a, a lot better. And even though, um, to that end, I'm kind of curious, how many of you guys noticed a big difference? You guys that participated in it, even if you didn't do seven days in a row, but you did it at least one day or something like that, how many of you could tell a difference in the way that your day went, uh, the way that you interacted with different people in your family, work life, and stuff, stuff like that? Yeah, I'm seeing a bunch of you guys. You notice a difference. You notice that it is a major difference when I begin the day saying, Lord, I'm grateful for my spouse. Even though we fought all the way to church, uh, right, even though we had this going on over here, I'm grateful for the companionship that's taking place right here. I'm thankful for my kids, and I'm thankful for this job because not everybody has a job, and, and, and God has given me this position. And even though it's not ideal, but, Father, I'm thankful for all of those things. Um, anybody in here discover that it's kind of difficult to be grateful sometimes? Anybody kind of try to go down that path and you're kind of going, okay, look, I got, I'm not, it's not working for me real well. Uh, I got to tell you a funny uh, story with this. I was uh, testing this out on Caleb. He's kind of my guinea pig, and, which is, may explain some PK things. But anyway, um, and so I'm, I'm talking about this, I'm explaining gratitude to him about probably about four or six weeks ago. And we're working on different things. And when we play together, we like to play cops and robbers a lot. He's always the police. I'm the bad guy. He's always putting me in jail. Somehow I always wind up in, like, handcuffs. I'm, like, attached to a, a, a chair in my living room. But um, that's how we play a whole lot of time. And so one of these nights, we're hanging out, we're playing, and, and we're trying to wind down. And I'm like, all right, buddy, we gotta get, you got to go to bed. And, and I put him in bed, and he's winding down. We were playing hard and everything. He's still kind of wired and, and uh, excited from what we were doing. And we lay down, and, and I'm like, okay. Typically, I'll take this time and I'll pray over him a prayer blessing. But this time, I was like, buddy, I, I want you to be practicing gratitude a lot more, okay? Well, let's, let's be, I want you to practice. So what I want you to do is I want you to think about something that you're thankful for, and then, um, and I want you to say it first. I'll pray here for us in the end. And so he goes, okay, okay, okay. And so we sit there, and it's just quiet. And it's like 20 seconds of kind of awkward silence and everything. And I look up, and I'm like, buddy, you all right? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I just... I can't, I can't think of anything. I'm like, don't worry about it. Just relax. Just relax. Anything that's in your heart that you're grateful for, just let it come out. And he's like, okay, okay. And he's like, but God, dear Lord, thank you. And, uh, and just getting really, really frustrated. And I was like, Caleb, can't, can't, it's okay. Just settle down. I was like, whatever's in there, but just, just any one thing. Just say whatever you want. He's like, okay. And so he tries it one more time, and he starts going, and then he starts, like, crying a little bit about it. I'm like, Caleb, what's going on, buddy? I was like, it's okay. Why, why are you crying about this? He's like, all I can think about is being the police officer that arrests the bad guys and puts them in jail. That's all I can think about right now. 
And I was like, and I just, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I was like, that, like, that was absolutely incredible, right? It's, it's not always easy to engage in gratitude. Um, sometimes we figured out a way that you can manipulate people with it. Uh, on Thursday this past week, we're having dinner. I think it's Thursday, Friday, maybe something like that. But we're having dinner one of these days this week. And we've been working a lot this past week. And he comes up to me and dinner's done. He takes his plate over and everything. And he comes and whispers in my ear. He goes, Daddy, I'm so thankful for you that you love me no matter what. He was telling Mommy that earlier in the week. And uh, he's like, I love, I'm thankful that you love me no matter what. And he's like, you're a good daddy. And so he's just whispering that in my ear. I'm like, oh, buddy, that's awesome. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. He goes, now can I have my dessert? Yeah. <laughs> and right, it's like, you are manipulating the crud out of me. So um, anyway, sometimes that's how it works out. Uh, but that is what we were talking about last, last week because Paul is saying, this is one of the keys to a better, more God-glorifying marriage, work life, family life, everything else is going on. To be a grateful, grateful people. Um, that was last week. This week, what I want to talk about, the word that's going to kind of summarize and capture everything that's in this passage today um, is, is the word deference, okay? And it's the word deference. And so I want to talk about this ministry of deference. Deference is this word that literally means uh, humble submission and respect for someone else, okay? And that's what we're going to be seeing play out all throughout this book, uh, all throughout uh, the following verses, but that's what it is. It is humble submission and respect given to someone else. And so it's not just an attitude that you have. Um, it's not just the feeling of humility or something like that. It's humility that begins inside, then it wells up and it comes out, and it's the practice of showing deference to someone else. Another way that you could put it is it's being okay with not always getting your way. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like it's being okay, not, not always getting your way. Any type A people, that's really, really making you crawl a little bit right now. You're going, that is not all right. I always get my way, and my way is typically the right way, right? Um, it, it's, it's uncomfortable in a lot of different ways because it's what we're going to be talking about here. It's just give, it's being okay with not always having your way. But that's what he's going to be talking about here in this section. In, in marriage, in verse 18 and 19, we're going to see this play out in two little words, love and submit. Love and submit. Uh, in verse 20, it's going to come out in the adolescent years, really through obedience. And you say, children, obey your parents. This is fitting in the Lord, right? It, with parents, it's going to come out. Uh, he simply says, don't provoke your children. But that's going to come out really in patience and really giving respect to the children that you bore, the children that are in your home, that are, you're raising up. And he's going to say, parents, respect them. You don't always have to yell at them. You don't always have to be screaming and demanding and overbearing and all these different things. Respect them. Don't speak in such a way that provokes them. Uh, when it comes to work in verse 22 and 23, he's going to talk about doing hard work with sincerity of heart. In other words, not just working hard when the boss is looking over your shoulder when he's in the office that day or anything like that, but doing it always as you would unto the Lord. Defer to them. Give them the honor that they're due. By the way, I'm going to take this opportunity to remind you again, every time that we're talking about bond servants, servants, slaves in this section, we're going to be applying it towards the work world because that's pretty a, a better way to apply what was actually taking place there. I'm going to argue that a lot of times, every time that you see slavery talked about, not every single time, every time we're talking about bond servants right here, it's not what you think about when you think about modern day slave trade today. Right, very different circumstances here. And the reason I'm saying this is because a lot of people today are going to see these words pop up throughout Scripture. And they're going to say, man, why in the world doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Why in the world does it talk about it right here? And I'm going to, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to tell you, number one, the description of how to live in a, 
in such a in a in a system like this, this bond servant type system is not an affirmation of a broken system. Okay, there are the major differences between what we know of as a slave trade today and what was actually taking place in biblical times back then. It doesn't mean what was taking place in biblical times was actually ideal, or that it wasn't oppressive, or that it wasn't horrific, because in a lot of elements it absolutely was. However, we also know from biblical times, somewhere around 60 to 90 percent of the Roman world were considered bond servants. These were people who were considered equal in social status, who sold themselves to a rich landowner, a rich business owner. Keep in mind, this is in lieu of a banking system, which is giving out loans, saving you from being bankrupt so that you can survive. They would sell themselves essentially to rich landowners and business owners as a bond servant, and then they would work for them in such a way that they could live and be provided for throughout that time. All the different things that we associate with the slave trade today are completely condemned all throughout Scripture. We talked about this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, when he condemns racism right there. And he simply says, hey, there is neither Jew nor Greek in Jesus Christ. There is neither circumcised or not circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. All those things are completely eradicated. There is unity in the body of Christ, and all those delineations have been completely eradicated in Jesus Christ. Right. So racism is completely condemned all throughout Scripture. Kidnapping, condemned in Scripture. Violence towards other people. The exploitation of labor. That's explicitly condemned even right here chapter 4 verse 1 hey masters don't exploit your laborers masters bosses owners people who are in charge who have power and authority don't exploit your laborers right there give them justice give them equity uh, rather than exploiting the people who work for you okay and so everything that we're talking about right here like this is all wrapped up in deference that's what we're talking about right here defer be okay with not always getting your way is what he's saying right here uh, he shows us what this attitude looks like in 1 Corinthians 9. And so he's not just talking about it. It's not just for some people. It's not even just for wives, which is a lot of times how this is applied. And we're going to put that to, to, to silence here in just a little bit. But he shows us what this looks like, 1 Corinthians 9. He says, though I am free and I belong to no man, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many people as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those who are under the law, I became like one who is under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those who are under the law. I love all the different qualifications that he says right here. To those who are under the law, I became like one not having the law. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I may save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may be able to share in its blessings. And so that's deference, right? It's giving of yourself fully for the sake of someone else, again, for his praise and for his glory. I've shared with you guys some of my uh, stories of a good friend of mine named Don in the past, and uh, this is a fun one. We had a, Don was this guy I met at a party a long time ago, if you're newer and haven't heard about him at all. I met him in his late 50s, and, uh, and we hung out, but uh, back in the heyday, he was one of the most popular gay male escorts in all of Dallas. And, uh, and so we met at this party later on, it was actually a seminary party, but anyway, we can get into that later. But, uh, but we're hanging out and talking and everything, and and so we developed a friendship right there, and later on he would come to faith, and it was this really beautiful friendship and everything like that. But in the early days, like, that was how our relationship began. Um, we were in completely different worlds most of the time. He was one of the major leaders in the Oaklawn community, and uh, I'll never forget, it was his 25th sobriety birthday. And so he invited me and, and Kat to go with him to this restaurant in Oaklawn called Hungdinger's. I didn't really think much about the name, which is probably good. Um, and then, and so we went out there, and, uh, and just suffice to say, it's not a place we would typically go hang out. That's not where we go on Friday and we go get dinner or anything like that. 
Um, and so we think about it, and I'm going, going okay, what are, should we, what are we doing here? But he was a good friend, and I, got to know, I wanted to get to know him. I wanted to get to know his friends. I wanted to get to know his community. One of the things I loved about Don is he would step into my world, and then I would step into his world many times too. He would come into the church. He would come into Christian circles that he's experienced a lot of pain and a lot of abuse in the past, but he would step into this world and he would ask questions and he would grow and he would learn and he would defer. He was okay with not always having his way. And so I was okay with not always having my preferences and walking into his world as well. Church, it's the ministry of deference. It's saying this isn't my ideal. This isn't exactly what I always want. This isn't my choice for Friday night or whatever it may be. This isn't the thing that makes, that makes me get excited or anything like that. However, for your good, for the sake of our relationship, for your honor, for the praise of his name, I'm willing to concede and I'm willing to defer to you today in this manner over here. It's exactly what we're going to be talking about here today. And what Paul is going to be showing us here is that this is the way of the Christ follower. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to have this preference for deference. We have to be okay with will, being willing to give of ourselves for someone else that God may receive all the praise and the glory and the honor in the end. Now, here's the tension that every single one of us are probably feeling inside of our souls as I sit here and I talk about words like submission. And specifically as in relationship to a wife and a husband right here. Um, in a lot of ways, we're probably inside here, and, and there's some of us that are really crawling inside going, okay, we've seen this not go well for many, 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 many times, right? I'm reading this article, 1999, Gallup poll came out with this research that essentially said most people in the country hate the idea of submission. I love that. I actually worked for Gallup poll in the mid-90s. I did not do the survey or anything like that, but um, this is back in the high school days, but um, they came out with a study, and they said most people in the United States hate the idea of submission. And so what they did is they pulled over 1,000 people, and they asked them this question, do you agree with the statement or not that a wife should graciously submit to a loving husband? 69% of the respondents said, no, we disagree. Like, there's no way that a wife should submit to her husband, right? And then the responder came back, and they said, okay, did you know that this is actually a Bible verse, that this is a biblical command in Scripture? And, of course, 60% came back and said, oh, okay, well, uh, it only impacted it about 9%. And 60% of it still disagreed and said, I don't care if it's biblical or not. Uh, that, that's not a thing that, that a wife should ever do. What was interesting about this study is that most people in the study, they all agreed with the rest of this section. right? No one's really arguing a whole lot whether or not a husband should love his wife. They're saying, of course, a husband should love his wife. Um, of course, kids should obey their parents. Parents should work hard uh, not to provoke their children. Workers should do their work with sincerity of heart. Bosses shouldn't exploit their, their employees or anything like that. And so most of us already agree with this passage, right? Most of us are already there. But here it is. When it comes to a wife's submission to her husband, uh, there's a lot of hesitation because we know how easy this kind of thing is to abuse. We've seen it play out time and time again. I mean, churches, think about for a second like how we talk about submission today. I mean, you talk about submission today, and I don't know if you have any, any MMA fans out there, Ultimate Fighter, I, I mean, you like seeing all this stuff, like it's awesome, right? Like it's a lot of fun, but what's a submission in, in mixed martial arts? Like a submission is what you do just before you die, right? <laughs> like that's what you do. You tap out, you tap the carpet, you have no more air, you're about to pass out. Last thing you do just before you die, you tap out, you submit, and, and you're done with the fight, right? That means the fight is over and you've been defeated by force. That's what a submission is in MMA. 
Much the same thing in war, right? A submission in war, you're flying the white flag and you're admitting defeat. You're now submitting to the enemy who's now defeated you by force. It's not a beautiful thing by any stretch of the imagination. It's how a lot of people all around the world, uh, it's why they a lot of times treat women as second-class citizens all around the world. Um, I'm talking with some good friends of mine who are serving as missionaries in Afghanistan today and a very, very difficult part of Afghanistan for the longest time is controlled as ISIS and stuff like that. And just an incredible couple. Um, this girl, she's a beautiful girl, this, this wise and smart, godly woman. And uh, she's telling some of the stories about her experience there. And she says, you know, when I walk down the streets there, like I have to be completely covered head to toe, right? And I'm not allowed to make eye contact with any man that walks past me on that street. And that's, just, that's what submission looks like in this culture over here. I'm not allowed to make eye contact with you. If I were to make eye contact with you, they would be within their right, according to the law, to beat me into submission, right? And so it, it, that, that's what it looks like over there. There was one of her friends, she shared this story. One of her friends was assaulted by somebody else, and she was actually thrown in jail for the crime of adultery while this man went out and he was completely free, Right? You know how difficult this is to, to, to do in a really, really good way. It's very, very easy to abuse. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be surprising to us that that's how it's going to play out. Uh, God tells us this in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, he tells us that this relationship is going to be difficult to maintain and that it's, gonna be, it's not always going to go well. In Genesis chapter 3, you remember this whole story, but this is when sin enters the picture and God is going to tell Adam and Eve the curse of sin and essentially the results of what's now going to take place since sin is entered in the picture. And so that's what's taking place. This is descriptive of sin's impact in the world. It is not prescriptive of how things should actually be. An important thing to understand about the curse when you read these things, it is not prescriptive of how things are ideally supposed to be. This is descriptive of sin coming in and breaking apart something that was otherwise completely beautiful. And so he comes into this thing and he says, here's the curse of sin. Essentially to the woman, he says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. And with pain, you will give birth to your children. All the women and all the, everybody in here can sit there and say that is absolutely still true today. Like we know that that is one of the curses, one of the impacts of sin in this world today. Uh, he continues after that and he says, your desire will then be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Okay, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. In other words, it's not always going to work out really well. That's what he's saying right here. She is going to desire him. The word that she uses is tashuka tech, which is a word which is, a, which is essentially a very, very strong desire. Sometimes it is even a controlling desire. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's, what he has in mind here. It is a strong desire. She's going to have that kind of desire for him. But now that sin has entered in the world, uh, he is going to rule and dominate over her much of the time. And so none of this is how it's supposed to be. However, it's exactly how it's played out over time. I mean, church, it's the reason that he has to clarify in this section, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Like, why is he throwing that little disclaimer? He could have said, love your wives and take them on a date. Love your wives, buy her a great outfit. Love your wives, like see the movie she wants to see. Like he could have said like a million other things. He says, love your wives, don't be harsh with them because that's how normative this problem is so many of the time. Like this is what was taking place, especially in the ancient world. Don't be harsh with them. That's the easy thing to do, especially at that point in time. I mean, church, when 93% of all domestic violence cases are reported, uh, they're reported by women, right? Like the, the, this is a problem that's still taking place in the home today. Like, this is still going on. Genesis chapter 20, like, Abraham hands over his wife to Abimelech like she's nothing. You remember this story? Like, he just hands her over and is like, no, 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 she's my sister, take her. Like, that's how little she is in his eyes. 
right? Judges chapter 19, there's a dad who hands over his young daughter to an angry, lustful crowd because he doesn't want to hand over the strange, the, the, the young man that's staying in his home that day. And so he hands over his young daughter to this crowd instead. Like that's how little they're affirmed way back, especially in ancient days. I mean, church, one of the most widely cited rabbinic sayings from the early Mishnaic period was a threefold prayer which said, praise be to God that he's not created me a Gentile. Praise be to God that he's not created me to be a woman. And praise be to God that he hasn't created me to be an ignoramus. Like, that was a literal prayer that they prayed all the time. Church, that's how little they are thought of all the time. And so we know that this absolutely gets abused. But hear me, church, like this is exactly why he's writing this section. The reason is to lift up these things and to fight against the injustices that are so easy for us to walk into over and over and over again. I mean, in verse 22, he's talking to employees. Check this out. And he says, do good work. In other words, like, don't rip off your bosses. Don't exploit them. Do good work with sincerity of heart, knowing that God is going to reward you in the end. And then in verse 25, he says this. He says, he is going to pay back the wrongdoer for the wrong that he's done. Church, this entire section is with an eye towards the wrong that is done in a lot of these relationships that we are living in every single day. He is going to pay back the wrongdoer for the wrong that he's done. Bosses, in chapter 4, verse 1. Treat your employees with justice, with fairness, and with equity. Why? Because there's a boss in heaven who's going to be judging you one day, he says, in chapter 4, verse 1. And then not only that, like it's wrong to exploit the people that work for you. This is about bringing fairness and bringing equity back into the equation. Father, stop provoking your kids. He's lifting up children right here. Like, don't only speak harsh to them right there. Treat them like valued human beings. Church, like this entire thing is about creating equity and peace in the home and at work. And so when he calls a wife in this section to submit to her husband, like he's not talking about submitting to abuse. He's not talking about submitting to evil or submitting to anything that is contradictory to God and his word or anything like that. He's talking about practicing deference in the home, being okay with not always having your way, being willing to give yourself to the will of your husband over and over again that in such a way that produces peace and in such a way that produces equity inside the home. Church, that's what's in mind. It's a word literally means to yield yourself to someone else. To yield yourself to someone else, to defer to them, to voluntarily be okay with not always having your way. And so I want to remind you how he begins this entire section. Because this is the key, this is the foundation. Don't miss this. He says, whatever it is you do, whether in word or deed, whether what you do or what you say, whatever it is that you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? We talked about this last week. Do it remembering that you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember who it is that you identify with. Remember how he went about doing his life. Do it in such, the, in such a way that is accurate and that uh, reflects the way that he lived and you saw him live in, the, in, in his day. Um, church, like, deference is the way that Christ lived over and over and over again. Paul talks about this explicitly. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, value other people is more important than yourself. Don't look only to your own interests. Uh, each of you should look to the interests of other people. Why? Because in doing so, you're going to have the exact same attitude that Jesus had. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Church, like that's what we're talking, that's the biblical picture of submission. Like that's what submission is. It is God in the flesh. 
God in the fullness of his power, fully God, fully man, not in weakness, not in passivity, not as a second-class citizen, co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Holy Spirit, choosing to lower himself for the long-term flourishing of humanity by laying down his life that you and I who come to him in faith may ultimately be saved. Church, that's the picture of submission that's taking place right there. It's not a matter of weakness or second-class citizenship or anything like that. It is God in the flesh choosing to do what is necessary for the long-term flourishing of the whole. It's Jesus in Mark 14, 36, again, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he's pleading with the Father just before his crucifixion. And you remember this. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Yet uh, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Church, that's submission. It is the picture. It is the practice of being okay with not always having your way. And the beautiful, the beautiful part of this whole section is that it's, it's not just wives who are called to submit, and it's not just husbands who are called to love, even though that's explicitly what he's talking about here. He's dealing with very specific problems that are going on here in this text. But it's not just a husband who's called to love other people. All believers are called to love all other people, not just your friends, but also your enemies, right? Like love isn't only for husbands towards a wife. Like, of course, wives should love their husbands, and it's not one-sided on the other way too. In fact, James is gonna come in this scene and in James chapter 3, he's going to actually say it's wisdom when you and I choose to walk with a preference of deference towards other people. It's actually wisdom if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you live in such a way that you're able to defer and you're able to give towards someone else who is in your life. We read about this James chapter 3. Uh, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom doesn't come from heaven, but it's worldly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Things like abuse in the home, things like kids who are crushed by an overbearing parent, things like bosses that crush and oppress everyone because they think that that's the only way that you can stay on top and keep your, uh, keep your rights and things like that. And what, Paul, what James is saying right here, he's like, that's one kind of wisdom that a lot of people kink in. It's that self-centered wisdom that says, I need to do whatever it takes for me to be king in the home, for me to be king among my kids, for me to be king at work or, or queen or whatever that may be. It's a self-centered wisdom. The other kind of wisdom that he talks about is a wisdom that comes from heaven. And he says, first of all, this wisdom is pure. It's peace-loving. Then it's considerate and it's submissive. Men and women, mixed setting, when you walk in this kind of a wisdom, this wisdom that's coming from heaven, it is submissive. It is full of mercy and good fruit. It is impartial and it is completely sincere and everything. Are you seeing the alignment here with Colossians chapter 3? All of these things are coming together and he's saying that this is the wisdom that comes from heaven. In other words, like it's actually wise to walk according to these things. You want to know why? It's because peacemakers who sow in peace, verse 18, will reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace, men and women who walk in deference to one another will reap a harvest of righteousness. Church, we see this play out all the time. Like people who sow in peace, typically they get back more peace in their life. Typically the people that are around them, like they respond with more peace when you initiate with peace. People who initiate with love typically receive love on the back end of that, of that initiation of love. Like people who walk in mercy typically get mercy back. I'm thinking about my, my third grade teacher, one of my, uh, I don't know if you guys have a favorite elementary school teacher. Uh, she was easily it for coming, but third grade, Mrs. Smith, just, she was awesome. Um, did it all. But uh, I remember coming into that class that year, and, 
you know, every elementary school classroom, they have a mixture of kind of students. You've got some kids that they're teacher's pets. They love following the rules. They love obedience and stuff like that. They bring the apple and they, you know, they always, you know, get the stars and on the chart, whatever. And then you got the other kids, right? Uh, you got the other kids that they like to push the envelope. They like to get laughs more than obedience. Um, I think Travis was that. But anyway, um, no, but uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, they, they, they come and they like to push the envelope a little bit more. And uh, I remember coming in, and my class that year had a, had a lot of kids that liked to get in a lot of trouble. And I remember that first week was kind of, it was just crazy. We came in there, and these kids are jumping up and down. They're not listening to her. They're being defiant. They're talking back. They're making all these jokes, being incredibly disruptive and all those things. And, and uh, the teacher was just having the hardest time in the world with them. And I remember, never forget, the second week a class comes in, and she just goes about it completely different. First day of that week, that Monday of that week, she comes to the room, and she goes, hey, Joey, Joey was one of the kind of the ringleaders of this group. She's like, hey, Joey, can you stand up for a second? She's like, I just want to honor, honor you for a second. She's like, you know what I love about you? You're a leader. God has given you this leadership gift, and people love following you, and, and you are going to lead a lot of people one day. And I can just see it. If you go the right way and you, and, and, and you become a good person, you're going to lead people in the right path, and it is a beautiful, beautiful thing about you. I love that about who you are, too. And she just goes on down the line. Like the next day she calls up Billy and Billy, she's like, Billy, you know, you're a leader too. And, and you're funny. People love following you. You're great. You're all these different things. She just goes down this list of affirmations. She's like, Sally, like you're kind. You love to include a lot of different people. And like, that's who you are. This is a unique, beautiful thing. And she's just calling people out in the middle of this classroom and saying, like, this is what's awesome about you. This is what's unique about you. This is who you are over here. And you think we had a problem with disobedience after that? Are you kidding me? Like all of those kids that were sitting there, they could not wait to defy Mrs. Smith. All of a sudden, they were in love with Mrs. Smith. What I'm saying, church, is when you, when you, when you sow, when you, there's a wisdom that is full of deference here. When you sow in peace, there's a harvest of righteousness, which typically comes back in the end. It's exactly what he's saying here. There's a wisdom that is rooted in deference that is able to reap a harvest. Right? There's a wisdom that is rooted in deference that is able to soften the most hardened person in the room. Like That's how powerful deference is. Church, there's nothing weak about deference. Like There's nothing passive about deference. It's not just laying down. It's laying down with intention for the long-term good of the people that are around you. Like There's nothing weak about this. Like It's incredibly powerful to have a preference for deference. And, so, like, and that's just what happens when it's one way. Like there's a wisdom in deference that has this ability to take hardened people, hardened spouses, stubborn people in the home. And when you lead with this preference of deference, one-sided ways, it has this ability to a lot of times bring back this harvest of righteousness there. Church, can you imagine what it's like when two people are coming together in the context of a marriage or the context of a home? And they're coming together with deference and there's this hunger for mutuality in this thing. Like, can you imagine when it's not just one person with a preference of deference who is loving someone only to be rejected by that love? Can you imagine when it's two people that are coming together with an attitude of deference saying, I am willing to give my life for the long-term flourishing of my spouse, my kids, my parents, my workers, my co-workers, everybody else that's in, in between. I'm telling you, it's an absolutely beautiful picture that Paul is giving to us here in this text. When two people come together with this mutual desire for deference. I'm telling you, like, church, it's the reason that I can stand here today with confidence and say this is a better way to do marriage is because, like, this passage doesn't end at verse 18. you you got to understand this. Like, this passage doesn't end at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. Like, Paul continues and he simply says, husbands, you got to love your wives. How has Christ loved the church? Like, it's not a one-sided thing. 
Like we're talking about two people coming together with a preference of, for deference so that two people are actually able to flourish together in this thing. Like that's what he's saying, church. In Ephesians 5, he's going to say, I want you to submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. Men and women, congregational settings right here, even outside the context of marriage, submit to one another. Treat each other like you're more important, like they're more important than you. Submit to one another. Verse 22, he says, wives, yes, submit to your own husbands. It's what people all around you, whether you're a believer or not, have been doing forever. Yes, you should submit to your own husbands, but husbands, love your wife. How? As Christ loved the church when he laid down his life for the flourishing of his bride. Church, like that's the example that's been given to husbands, right? It's not Jesus in the heavenlies feeling all these feelings of love towards his church or his bride or anything like that. It's Jesus suffering and dying on the cross that his bride can be saved. Like that is, the, that is the picture that's been given to us. It's Jesus in Matthew 20 when he says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, I'm telling you, wife, we need this in our homes and we need this in our workplaces. I can't tell you how many people I talk to, how many wives specifically I talk to that are dying for their husbands to learn how to love them day by day by day. Husbands that are saying, I, I, I'm tired of the fight. I need submission in the home. I can't tell you how many people I, I hear from all the time that is like, I can't, I need this to become a reality in our life. Two people with a preference for deference. George, I'm, I'm telling it's the husband I was talking to years ago whose question to me was like, okay, yeah, 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 that's great. But he says, how long do I need to let an argument play out before I can finally tell her to submit? Like I'm telling you, like we need, we, we need to understand the mutuality in this marriage. He literally asked that. Like, how long do I need to let this argument play out before I tell her to submit? Church, I'm telling it's the friend who came to us years ago in desperation saying, like, I feel like I'm a prisoner in my own home because I'm not allowed to disagree with my husband. I'm not allowed to have a voice. I'm not allowed to speak up at all. When I do, there's trouble here. Like, it's the woman who had to give up all of her friends because their encouragement in her life made her less passive at home. And he loved a passive, silent person back at home. It's the wife who said she hasn't been on a date with her husband in 13 years. It's just not important anymore. It's the friend who had his fiance sign an agreement three pages long about how often they would do this, that, and the other, how often she would cook, all the different expectations that are going to go into this thing and what he demanded of her before they got married. Three-page document coming into this thing. Church, I'm telling you, like, we need to understand the mutuality. we got to understand this preference for deference taking place in the home and there at work. Like Paul defines it. He says this is a beautiful thing when two people are coming to the table with two people saying, hey, I'm willing to lay down my life for the flourishing of my spouse. In 1 Corinthians 13, he's going to define it further, and he's going to simply say, love is patient and it's kind. In other words, church, like it's not love unless it's exhibited by patience and kindness. It's just not that. You talk about love, you think it may be love. It's not actually love unless you're showing patience, you're showing kindness. In other words, it's nothing like the abusive things we were talking about earlier. Like this is what it is. It's patient and it's kind. It's one of my, my, my heroes of the faith that I've actually never met, and I've seen him from afar, Dr. Greg Hatterberg. Honor that man. He was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Everybody knew that years earlier, his wife Lisa came down with MS. She was unable to take care of herself. And you would see Dr. Hatterberg, even in his classrooms, just dote on his wife with his language, the way that he talked about her, how much he loved her, cared for her. You would see him wheeling her around on campus, sitting in the cafeteria, feeding her her food, brushing her hair. I knew his son, and so I knew behind the scenes he was up early helping her get ready, helping her shower, helping her get ready with all these different kinds of things. Like, that's what love is. It's patient. 
It's not loving if you say, I need you to hurry up. I need you to get on board. It's willing to say, hey, you know what? Life has thrown us a curveball. And so now we've got this brand new reality. And I'm going to step alongside this brand new reality. And I'm going to adjust that you can flourish in this whole thing. Like that's what love is. It's got definition, church. It's not just feelings. He continues and says it doesn't envy. It doesn't envy the other person. In other words, it doesn't get threatened by the success of a spouse. right? If they're a great mother, you don't have to put them down just so that you can feel better about your struggling work. Right? If they're great at their work, you don't have to put them down and, you don't, and make fun of their house, their lack of domestic abilities and stuff because, because like, that's what you do. Like, you don't have to do those kinds of things. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It doesn't bow up with pride and put the other person in their place. It doesn't constantly remind them that, hey, I'm king. I'm in charge of this thing and you're not. It doesn't do that. It doesn't swell up with pride and boast and put people in their place. It doesn't dishonor your wife. It doesn't dishonor your husband behind their back. When no one else is around and you're talking with your friends, bingo night, like card night, poker night, locker room talk, whatever it may be, wherever you are, no matter how normative it is with your friends, family, whoever that you're around, it does not dishonor the other person, especially when they're not around. It doesn't say my bum of a husband, the lack of the paycheck, the weight that they've put on, this, that, and the other. Like it doesn't dishonor them. It lifts them up. It speaks well about them. It's not self-seeking, Paul says, meaning it is quick to show deference to serve other people because it honestly values that person more than the role that they play in your life. One of my heroes in the faith is Priscilla Shire. I said this before. I could listen to her messages all day long. She comes from the Tony Evans family. Um, that whole family is just anointed by God. I love them. I've never met them, but I hope to one day. Um, just honor that family tremendously. I remember a few years, number of years ago, hearing her husband talk about there's a unique dynamic in their home. And I love the way that he talked about that. But if you know Priscilla Shire, just easily one of the best preachers in the world, I think. Uh, she's an exceptional author. She writes Bible studies. She's even an actress. This has an incredible career, right? She's just a, a unique anointing and calling by God to do a bunch of things. And her husband was in a, uh, her husband was well accomplished himself. He had a very successful corporate career. But a number of years ago, he was just talking about how they're praying together as a family, saying, what does it look like for me to love my wife? What does it look like for our family to flourish and for the gospel to flourish all around the world? And he said, as I'm praying and I'm asking the Lord for these questions, I could not help but say, you know what, it's time for me to step out of this world and start managing her career so that we can be together in the workplace, so that we can be together in the workplace. And so he actually today works for her in a lot of different ways. And he's saying that this is the way that we have to flourish. I'm going to give up my life. I'm going to give up my career for the sake of our family's flourishing, for the sake of the gospel all around the world. And he's saying this is not a unique, this is a unique thing. Like how can I look at my wife and the unique gifts and the unique opportunities that God has given to her and do anything else? How can I sit there and say, no, 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 I need you to come and be quiet. And, and, and I need you to come and do something completely different at home. Like, that's not who she is. It's not who, who God has uniquely wired her to be. And so he sits there and he says, this is who she is. It's not self-seeking. This isn't just about me. This is about our family. This is about the gospel going out to the entirety of the world. And this is what love looks like in this particular setting right here, church. That's what we're talking about. It's the preference for deference. He says it's, it's not easily angered. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Doesn't keep bringing up the exact same thing over and over and over and over and over again once it has already been dealt with. It doesn't delight in evil, it rejoices with the truth. I'm gonna say that again. It doesn't delight in evil, it rejoices in the truth. It doesn't delight in evil, it rejoices in the truth. 
It doesn't force you into things that are not only contrary to God's will, but explicitly evil. It doesn't force you to watch certain things which are sinful before God and command you to do things that you're not comfortable doing. It does not rejoice in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always perseveres. It keeps on praying. It keeps on encouraging. It keeps on engaging and taking initiative. Love never, ever, ever fails. And so husbands, you need to hear me because this is the command that's been given to you. And if you think that deference is only for the ladies, you're not reading the Bible. I don't know how you look at this and see the definition of love and see the life of Christ. God emptying himself, taking on flesh, lowering himself for the long-term salvation of the world, any and all who would come to him in genuine faith. Love is deference. And what Paul's saying in this passage here is it has got to be mutual for it to actually be better and more God-glorifying in the end. Wives, yes, you should submit to your husbands. Husbands, yes, you should love your wife, not just in this ethereal feeling kind of orientation, but as the Bible describes love, laying down your life for the flourishing of your spouse. Children, obeying, dads, giving respect, bosses, giving equity, employing, employees, doing great work, full of sincerity, two people with a preference for deference, so two people are able to flourish. You know, one of the questions that Kat and I get asked all the time is, is how do you do your marriage? Um, they ask us that all the time because if you know us, we have very similar personalities. We have very similar giftings. We fell in love back in college. I was preaching the gospel in uh, my organization. She was doing it in her organization. She loved the word of God. I love the word of God. She wanted to go to seminary. I wanted to go to seminary. We're very wired the same way. We both have leadership gifts. And everybody asked, they're like, how do two strong people, how do two people that are so similarly wired, how do they come together in marriage? One of the ways that I've always illustrated it is it's kind of like when you walk in the doors of this church. You know, when you walk in the doors of this church, there's two sections of doors, Right. Um, you've got three on the front end, you've got a whole other section here, and you're going to be walking in, and inevitably somebody's going to get there before you, and they may grab that door, and they're going to open it, and then they're going to say, come, after you. And then that person's going to walk through, they're going to get to the second set of the doors, and they're going to grab that door, and they're going to open it up and say, no, 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 after you. And it's exactly how, what we talk about here. It's just two people walking side by side, constantly opening up doors for the other. I mean, that's what it is. It's two people walking side by side saying, no, 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 after you. No, 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 it's your turn, like, after you, after you. To the best of our ability is how we try to play this out over and over and over again. Early on in our marriage, we were very confused about how we were going to both pay for seminary. We had these aspirations. We had a ton of undergrad debt. We're sitting there, I don't know how practically, functionally, how this is going to take place. We didn't have to make, we got in an argument about it. I was very, very rude. And, um, and we didn't have to make a decision right then. And so we just started praying. We're like, Lord, we need you to come and, and, and to show us how this thing is going to take place. I had a great job at Sewell selling cars. I gave him a three-year commitment, about a year and a half-ish, somewhere in there. Uh, her job wasn't going as great, and we just started praying. And just I started discerning on my own with my family over there, my other fam my, my parents, and felt a strong leading that it was time for her to jump into seminary and for her to go. I remember coming and saying, babe, this is your turn. Go, go, start studying. I've got a year and a half left. It'll be my turn later, and, and we'll figure this out. And so we open up the door, and she walks through and goes. The end of the time at Sewell comes, and she's still got a little bit of school left, but she jumps up, and God's provided through this different business opportunity over there. And she just says, it's your turn. Go. 
it's your turn, go, take full, full courses right here. I'm going to support us and stuff during this time. And just here's this door open, go and walk through it. A few years later, God gives her a burden to start this ministry for professional young women to get the gospel out in these places where they're not walking into the church anymore around here. And we want to go to them, and she's discerning this along with her friend Stephanie and saying, hey, I've got this idea for a ministry. It's going to cost us a lot of money. I'm not going to make any money back in the end, but I think it's essential to get the gospel out in these, seri- in these areas. And we pray about it. I'm just discerning this thing, and I'm seeing these gifts in my wife, and I'm saying, "Lo, here's this door. It's wide open. Run through it. Go. Go. And the time is coming over at this other church, and she's saying, no, you've got to take this job over here. You need to go do this singles ministry over here. Here's the door. Go and run through it. And even as we're coming over here, we were coming in this thing back in 2015 saying, Lord, where would you have us go? What would you have us do? And she would just come and she'd say, Here, I'm willing to go anywhere. I'm willing to go anywhere. And we're praying together and we're discerning these things together. I'm willing to follow these things. And DBC comes and she's opening up this door saying, Go run through this door. We will run and we'll do this thing together. Church, that's to the best of our ability. That's all, all I can explain it. Two people running side by side after the Lord Jesus Christ saying, Here's a door. Let me open it for you. Here's another door. Let me go and open it for you. And what Paul's saying here is that it's got to be mutual for this thing to be good and for it to be glorifying to God in the end. It is very, very easy to abuse. A husband who loves his wife and it's not reciprocated, it's crushing. A wife who submits always to her husband and it's not reciprocated, it's, tr- it's crushing. Two people coming together with a preference for deference, saying it's not all about me, it's about you. And it's about these kids, and it's about these parents, and it's about my coworkers, and it's about my boss, and it's about the church, and it's about my neighbors. I'm going to give my life for their good and for his glory. So the question I just have for you today is simply this. Is there a door that God may be leading you to open for someone today? Maybe it is a spouse. Maybe you've had those arguments. Maybe you've had those conversations. Maybe it's a kid, and it may not be your will. It may not be your idea. It may not be what you prefer or what you want. Is there a door that God may be leading you to open for someone else today?